Our scripture this morning can be found in Genesis 42, 1 through 11, and 45, 1 through 7. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sowed grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. In Genesis 45, uh, 1 through 7, Joseph makes himself known. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it, is, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be there will not be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. I know last week I preached down here because I had an opening story and I needed a story room. I'm going to do it again. As I was preaching here last week, the word family kept coming to mind. I think it was two weeks ago I took gave you all an update on me, and just being closer to you all meant a lot to me, so I'm not saying I'm always going to preach from here, but I'm going to do it again because uh, you're my family, and uh, it's just come to mean a lot to me. Plus, icing on the cake is I'm further from Keith, and that just adds to it. So, One of you uh, encouraged me to get a book entitled Unbroken. Has anybody heard of this book? Incredible book. I recommend it highly. It's being made into a movie directed by, does anybody know? Angelina Jolie, of all people. Of What do they call it? Brangelina or whatever. 
and it's apparently going to be incredible. I've seen trailers for it, and it's the amazing true story of a World War II veteran, prisoner of war survivor named Louis Zamperini. On May 27, 1943, Zamperini's bomber left Oahu in search of survivors from a downed plane. He was 800 miles from base when his engine cut out, and he and his co-pilot plunged into the ocean. They survived the crash into the ocean, but then they found themselves on a lifeboat for 47 days and survived, which at the time was a world record. They dealt with sharks, they dealt with starvation, they dealt with dementia, and then they were finally picked up by a boat. (laughs) But that's when the battle really began because it was a Japanese warship. And immediately they were shipped to the uh, horrible Sugamo prison, which was one of the worst known POW camps you could find among Japanese POW camps. There was a particular sadistic guard named Watanabe who was nicknamed the Bird. And, and he subjected Louis in particular, kind of singled him out for horrible torture, terrible humiliation, and an effort to break his spirit, and really to break the spirit of all the Allied uh, soldiers who were prisoners. Well, in 1944, in fact, they had not heard about Louis in so long that he was declared dead. But then, what seemed miraculously, he returned to America to a big rush of publicity. But unfortunately, he found himself dwindling into, let's say, a self-made prison of war that had to do with alcoholism and bitterness. He had constant nightmares about his past, and he had what he called an obsessive drive to murder the bird, to go back to Japan and murder this man who had put him to such torture and humiliation. But in 1949, and this is all in the book, which is so cool, hope it's in the movie, he attended a Billy Graham crusade and for the first time really locked into the grace that Jesus Christ offers, the forgiveness that Jesus offers, and he experienced Christ that night and Christ's forgiveness, and he gave his heart over to Jesus. But here's the question. Theoretically, could Louis actually forgive the bird? (laughs) He realized now that he was forgiven, but could he actually get to a point of forgiving this man who had tortured him? Now, chances were he would never see this man again, and yet how could he, even if he saw him, forgive him for having been treated so horribly? But let's take it a step further. Thinking about how sadistic and uncaring and cold this man was, what if this man could not care less if Louis Zamperini forgave him? Are you following me? What if he didn't care about accepting Louis' forgiveness? Well, what about you? You know, should Louis still forgive him, even if that man did not care about being forgiven? What about you? Think about someone in your life for whom it's been difficult for you to forgive. And part of what could be difficult about it is that this person really isn't even thinking in terms of needing to be reconciled to you. It, it's, it's just outright, you know, they don't care about accepting forgiveness from you just outright unrepentant, could you forgive that person without necessarily being reconciled to that person? All of us have run into this situation. If you haven't yet, trust me, you will. Now, I'm going to do something a bit different with our biblical passage this morning, something I don't recommend for preachers to do, 
something I would never, never allow my preaching students to do. Instead of really dealing more fully with the biblical text, I'm going to let it serve as a springboard toward something I want to drill deeper on, a specific facet of forgiveness. In fact, I'm going to impose a what-if on our biblical passage about Joseph. Now, now we know how the story goes. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Thirteen years, he's a slave. But miraculously, he rises up to become, what, prime minister of Egypt. Years later, there is a famine. And then 23 years after having been sold into slavery, what happens? Joseph's brothers have to move down toward Egypt to find some food because there's a famine in their land. And it's been 23 years, so they don't recognize Joseph at first. And and ultimately, you know what happens. Uh, You know, Joseph reveals himself. They reconcile. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God worked it for what? Good, right? Now, this is interesting. Before Joseph revealed himself to them, he put his brothers through at least a couple of tests. You might remember this. He, he tells them, first of all, to go back and get their remaining brother, Benjamin, because Joseph wants to see Benjamin. That's his biological brother, as you know, and so he keeps Simeon there with him, saying, I'm going to put him in prison. You have to go back and get him and bring him back. Well, they do just that, and then he sets up that scenario, you might recall, that what? He he sets up a scenario that makes it appear as though Benjamin has stolen Joseph's favorite cup. And Joseph comes down on Benjamin because of that. But the other brothers stick up for Benjamin, particularly Judah, who, who offers that very moving speech about, listen, I don't know if he did it or I don't know if he did it on purpose, but, but don't take him, take me. Don't execute him, execute me. Joseph had been doing this, why? He wanted to see if they were sincerely remorseful and, if you will, repentant about what they had done to him so long ago, if their hearts had been softened. So he's kind of putting them to a test. And then, you know, he can't take it any longer after Judah sticks up for Benjamin. He can tell that their hearts are softened, and then he reveals himself, and they reunite. End of a beautiful story. But let me ask you this, and this is where I'm imposing the what if. What if they had not been repentant? Just, just, just go, go there with me, okay? What if Joseph's brothers could not have cared less about being forgiven and reconciling with Joseph? Could Joseph still have forgiven them? No doubt Joseph could have, you know, he still could have proclaimed, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, look at all the great things that happened to him. But could he have forgiven them had they not wanted forgiveness, had they not been repentant? Now, what about you? Has there been a person in your life who has been difficult for you to forgive? It could be because they've already passed on, or it could be they're far away and you don't know where they are. Nevertheless, there's an element of unrepentance to it. And it's a struggle to forgive someone who has wronged you that way, but they really don't seem to, you know, it's unreceived, unaccepted forgiveness. And that can be hard to deal with. The offender doesn't care. The offender might not change. Which leads to this question, do we have to forgive those who wrong us even when they don't want to receive it? Now, what do you think the answer is? Can somebody say? Yeah, you do. Why? Well, Jesus says yes, but why? Does Jesus say yes simply because we're supposed to be nice? 
Church people are always supposed to be nice, aren't we? Have our little smile. We're always supposed to be good. I, I love what Mark Twain, in a, in a moment of sarcasm, said about people who go to church. He said, church is where good people stand in front of good people and tell them how to be good people. Uh, no, we don't do it. We don't forgive just to be good. We don't do it just to be nice. Jesus wants to forgive even the unrepentant, because it really sets you and me free in two very significant ways, two critical ways that I want to address this morning. First of all, it sets us free from control. Maybe I should say from being controlled. Forgiveness is not about the past. It's really all about the future. And not to forgive is you're choosing to look backward instead of forward. Don't let that person who is wronged you keep you backward. In the past, what they're doing then is controlling you, and you're allowing them to do that. When you cannot forgive someone, you, in a sense, just like Louis Zamperini was in a, in a real way, you're a POW in your own private war for two, and in this case, the other person doesn't even care that they're involved in a war with you. It's like you're in a concentration camp where the guards who are blocking your escape are your own brutal thoughts for retribution and anger and grudge. And their lack of repentance is controlling you. You've got to let it go. You've got to let go of the anger, maybe even the hate, the bitterness, the desire for retribution. And yes, indeed, you and I know this, it is a process. Which is why, and we've said this before, Jesus said, don't just forgive seven times. What does he say? Does anybody know? Seventy times seven. What is Jesus saying? It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes effort. It takes remembering your own shortcomings, how you have wronged other people too. Forgive us our trespasses as we what? Forgive those who trespass against us. But it's sometimes hard to pray, and you've got to pray through clenched teeth, but you say it anyway. You might even be at a point where you say, Lord, I find it hard to forgive. I can't even begin to forgive this person at this point. Help me to want to forgive, Lord. Just help me to get to the point of desiring to forgive. I need to get there before I can even get close to forgiving them. But that is what we are called to do. Now, now let's, let's be clear that there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. There's a difference between forgiveness and condoning that person's behavior condoning that person's cold heart. There's a difference between forgiveness and tolerating. And there's a difference between forgiveness and defending yourself. As I've said many times, nowhere in Scripture is self-defense forbidden, condemned. When you have to defend yourself, that's nowhere condemned. So, Forgiveness doesn't mean condoning their behavior. It doesn't mean tolerating them. Do you remember in Matthew 18 where Jesus gives some very practical advice for the church about if someone sins, and more particularly if they sin against you, what do you do if you can? If you're in a situation to do it, what do you do? You go to that person one-on-one, right? And if that's not successful, if they remain unrepentant, what do you do? You take some other people with you to confront the person. Well, what if that doesn't work? Well, you take some other people eventually if it's, if it's feasible. You take them before the whole church, and if they still will not repent, and I mean, Jesus isn't being totally literal on this. He's saying, you know, you try and try and try it through a process, but if they still won't repent, what does Jesus say? Treat them like a, what does it say, tax collector. Now, is Jesus saying completely shun them and cut them off? No, Jesus wouldn't say that, even with the worst of sinners. What he's saying is what? Treat them as a sinner who needs the grace of Jesus. 
But there's really something you need to keep in mind. You treat them that way by which you still work to love them, work to forgive them, but that does not necessarily mean you have to be best buddies with them. You don't have to condone their behavior. You don't have to tolerate what they do. You don't have to just be a doormat and continue to take it from that person. But you strive to forgive. It just means you don't have to tolerate what they're about. And forgiving them in this way helps set you free from being controlled by that offender. Just this past Wednesday, and I was really inspired to kind of go in this direction, to be honest, because of a a young lady named Kara Kellner. I don't know if you know her. She's been coming to the second service and she's visiting, so let's, let's work on her. And uh, she and her mother have been coming, and they've been coming faithfully to uh, our equipping group that Deanna and I lead on Wednesday nights. They've been coming faithfully here to the second service. She's a wonderful lady, but she talked just this past Wednesday night about the person whom she has struggled the hardest to forgive throughout her lifetime because the person who she struggles to forgive basically killed her father. Uh, when, when Carol was four years old, her father was killed by a drunk driver. And she shared with us very honestly, she said, I still work at it. And, and, and I think she's probably at a great place now. And she said, but, but, you know, someone so significant to me was taken away from me at such an early age. And then my mom had to take on all this extra responsibility, you know, to raise us and everything. By the way, she's been visiting and she's ultra cool too and has raised obviously some great, some great kids. But then Kara shared with our group Wednesday night a quote that she carries around, just has it here whenever, you know, she struggles with forgiving this person who is a drunk driver or anybody else, and she just showed it to us. I said, hey, send that to me. And I just really like it. It's very practical, and it's this. And this is where she goes when she needs to go to that place to help her process toward forgiving someone. It says, forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. Can I say that one more time? Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. Now, what about Louis Zamperini? Could he forgive the bird, the man who tortured him so horribly? Well, let me just read from the book, and this is why I'm a fan of this book. You don't always find stuff like this, but this is uh, from the book by Lori Hildebrand. By the way, she also wrote the the Seabiscuit book that was made into a movie. But Laura Hildebrand just kind of puts it out there. Could he bring himself to forgive the bird? Let me just read from the book. When Louis thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he now believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed, he was a new creation. And the story goes on. A year after trusting Christ, Zamperini returned to the Sagamo prison in Japan where he met with his former captors, except for the bird who was not there. Louis was informed that the bird had committed suicide. He did not know how, did not know what the circumstances were, But this is how Hildebrand closes. She says, Louis felt something that he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside him. It was forgiveness. (laughs) Beautiful and effortless and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over.
You know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. In other words, even when they are unrepentant, you forgive them. That sets you free from being controlled, from allowing yourself to be controlled. And I want us to look at these words of Jesus a little bit more carefully because it tells us one other thing. Forgiving the unrepentant sets us free to forgive as Jesus did and and does. Think of Jesus on the cross. What were his first words? I know you know what they are. But isn't it amazing that he did not say, Father, deliver me. Nothing about them, but Father, deliver me. Take me up like Enoch or Elijah. Or Father, avenge me. Think about this. He had a hand in the creation of the very people who are now humiliating him and torturing him and jeering at him. Think about that. Avenge me. Would he have been justified in avenging them? Absolutely. Gosh, I wonder where we would be had he chosen to say those words. But no, what did he say? First words we know of on the cross, Father, what does he say? Forgive them. And some of you may know this. Do you know he said those words more than once? Do you know that? Uh, The word therefore said, Jesus said, that's in the imperfect which connotes continuous action, repeated action. I want you to think about that. Think of Jesus saying that as he's being beaten, as he's being flogged, Father, forgive them. As he's having a a crown of thorns pushed down on his head, Father, forgive them. As he's carrying the cross on the Via Della Rosa, Father, forgive them. As he's being stretched out on the cross, Father, forgive them. As he was being hoisted up, Father, forgive them. And even before being hoisted, being nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive them again and again. The the New American Standard Bible says Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. Again and again to people who were so unrepentant. Even these soldiers. I, I think how cold a situation it must be where these soldiers are coldly casting the lots of this person who is hanging naked on a cross, being so utterly tortured and gasping for air, and they're casting lots in the most uncaring way down there. Father, forgive, yes, even them. They do not know what they are doing. Now, let me ask you this. Does that mean that they are ignorant of their wrongdoing? No. Peter knew that he had denied Jesus. The Sanhedrin knew that they had bought off somebody to to drum up false accusations against Jesus. Judas realized that he had betrayed Jesus. The mob knew that they got Pilate to hand an innocent man over to them to be executed. Thing is this, they weren't ignorant of the facts of their guilt. They were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. The vastness of their guilt. They did not realize they really were crucifying the very Son of God. But Jesus forgave even the unrepentant, and that's what we are called to do. And you got the answer right a while back. Yes, that is the answer, but it's so hard sometimes, and yet that's what we're called to do. And it can make a difference. I shared this a few years ago. My good friend Randall O'Brien, who's the president now of Carson Newman College, good Baptist school in eastern uh, Tennessee, and, and a wonderful preacher, Uh, But he shared about having preached one Sunday, and he said he saw this one person out in the congregation who who just had his arms crossed and kept shaking. It's not a good feeling, by the way, if if you're up preaching and somebody's just going like this. Don't don't ever do that, okay? 
Sometimes Richard Stevens does that when he thinks I'm off. He just kind of does that. Like, no. But uh, there was a guy who was doing just that, and that's not a great feeling. And sure enough, Randall, as he was preaching, he thought, that guy, that guy is going to wait till everybody else is gone, and he's going to come up and confront me. And sure enough, that's what happened. And the man came up, didn't even shake his hand, so his arms crossed, and said, well, you're like all those other preachers, answering questions that people aren't asking. And he said, well, what do you mean, sir? And the man proceeded to talk about someone who had really been a good friend of his who betrayed him in a really, really bad way, a really, really harsh way. And he said, this man did me wrong. Yes, sir. Well, here's my question, preacher. Do I have to forgive him if he doesn't repent? You hear the question? Do I have to forgive them if he doesn't repent? And Randall said, God just revealed it to him there. He can't take the credit, but he said, no, sir, you don't understand. That's not the right question. The right question is, can he repent if I don't forgive? The man said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, the cross. He said, sir, who repented when Jesus was on the cross? Did Pilate? No. Did Judas? No. (laughs) Did the Sanhedrin? No. Did the soldiers? No. Did the mob? No. Did one of the thieves? No. But he forgave anyway. He forgave anyway, and that made all the difference. And Randall said, who knows, maybe your friend might be broken today and will choose to be reconciled with you. But you can't guarantee it. Does that always happen? No. But still we forgive. Think about it. Think about the passage that you're probably familiar with, Romans 5, 8. For God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While, we, while you and I were yet unrepentant, Christ forgave us. He forgave us even before we repented. Do you follow me? And that's just kind of mind-bending when you think about that. Even before we existed, he forgave us. And thanks be to God, he gives us the opportunity to turn toward him to receive that forgiveness. Even when somebody else isn't receiving your forgiveness, thanks be to God, you had the opportunity to receive it at one point. John puts it a different way in his epistle. We love because he, you know, first loved us. And if there's any hope for us, there's hope for others, even those whom we struggle to forgive. We can work toward forgiving those who are unforgivable in our minds, in our hearts. And we forgive regardless of whether or not they're going to repent. And sometimes it's a 70 times 7 process, but just as we read at the beginning of this service, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Paul says that, Colossians 3.13, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. I want us to watch this video as we close, just as a meditation, and look at the words, look at the images, and consider whether or not you're really willing to follow the way of this man.
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I want to just give you an opportunity right now to voice to God, first of all, thanks for forgiving you of your sins. Will you do that for just a moment? And now here's the tough one. I want you to think about someone who comes to the surface of your mind and your heart and your soul when you think about someone who has been difficult for you to forgive for whatever reason. Will you offer up a prayer to God right now that at the very least that that he would give you the desire to forgive that person, that that he would help you want to forgive that person. Or, or maybe this could be a time of true closure for you where you can finally set aside that burden that is getting the best of you and really not just burdening you but controlling you and give that spirit of forgiveness over to the Christ who also forgave you. Can you lift up that person right now in a spirit of forgiveness and pray that you might forgive that person? Lord, as your people, we confess to you that this is so much easier said than done. And yet it's what you want us to do, and may we always picture you on the cross forgiving others who were so, so horribly unrepentant. But if you can do that, we can follow the pattern of your forgiveness as well. Teach us to do that. And as Paul said in his letter, just as you have forgiven us, so we are called to forgive. Help us to do that as you call us to do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.